Well, let's turn in our Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Luke, <clears throat> Luke chapter 5, where we've been working our way slowly through the Gospel. And uh, this morning we look at the story of the call of Peter. Luke chapter 5, page 1597. 1597 in your pew Bibles. And uh, one of the announcements, while you're looking that up, one of the announcements that uh, Pastor Young Kwong didn't get to was, um, actually we've got a classes meeting coming up here at our church, and that'll happen a week from Tuesday. So it's Tuesday the 22nd. And if you're at all interested in um, seeing what goes on at a classes meeting, which is sort of the next level up in our denomination above our congregations, you're welcome to join us uh, for that meeting that day. There are times when uh, guests are sort of asked to, uh, to leave briefly while delegates might discuss a matter, but otherwise uh, these meetings are open to you, and uh, we'd love to have you learn more about how your church works. Um, these meetings rotate through all the congregations of the classes, and so the meetings only come back here probably once every eight years, something like that. So if you have some time on Tuesday the 22nd, um, please join us for that meeting. Uh, one of the uh, topics will be uh, the ordination exam of Pastor Young Kwong, and maybe that's why he didn't mention this earlier. Um, <laughs> But uh, you're welcome to join us uh, and observe what a pastor has to go through to, uh, to be ordained in the Christian Reformed Church. Let's, uh, let's look at Luke chapter 5 and uh, what God has in store for us in His Word this morning. <clears throat> we'll read the first 11 verses. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and have caught nothing. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken, and so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on the shore, left everything, and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And will you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for your word and for the opportunity to hear it this morning. Lord, give us your Holy Spirit. 
my words are weak unless they are empowered by your Spirit. And my words will give little insight unless you shine your light upon them. And so, Lord, open our ears, open our hearts, and make this your word to us as your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, long before I knew this gospel account of Jesus calling Simon Peter to follow him, Mrs. Tooney had taught me to sing this story in the basement of Calvin Church in Sheboygan in our Sunday school. I will make you fishers of men, we sang over and over. I will make you fishers of men, and we would cast away, cast away, cast away, thinking that we were going to change the world, we were going to catch people for Jesus, and giving probably very little thought to that next phrase in the song if you follow me. If you follow me. I mean, what did that phrase and what could it have possibly meant to a bunch of little kids in the basement singing, I will make you fishers of men? What did we know about changing the world? What did we know about catching people? What did we know about following Jesus? I wonder how much Peter knew at the beginning of this account. Peter is also sort of young in this story, young and at the beginning of his life with Jesus. Everything is new to him. Peter wasn't yet a fisher of people. He was just a beginner at following. But what Peter must go through is something all of us must go through if we are ever to be fishers of, of people the way Jesus wants us to be. What did Peter go through? Well, first of all, Peter experiences what we might call the insensitivity of Jesus. Jesus' insensitivity. Now, we don't think of Jesus in that regard too often, but... Look at the story that we have here in front of us. Jesus is, is doing some teaching down by the lake. The people are listening to what Luke calls the Word of God that's coming from his lips. And apparently there are a lot of people because Luke says the crowds are, are closing in on Jesus. They're surrounding Jesus. And so Jesus shows some resourcefulness and, and he gets in a boat, sets out a little bit from shore. And in effect, he creates there on the shore a little amphitheater where everyone can see him, where everyone can hear him, and that's where he begins to preach and to teach. Which all seems like a great idea. It's a wonderful little story until you realize that, well, this boat actually belonged to someone, right? I mean, this was Peter's boat, and it was vital to his business. But Jesus just sort of commandeered it, and it's not like Jesus just borrowed the boat, but Jesus borrows Peter as well. I mean, if you look at the story, he asked Peter to get in the boat with him and put out a little from shore. And so the entire time Jesus is preaching in this story, Peter is a captive audience. Peter has no place to go whatsoever. He can't go to the shore and sort of help his fellow fishermen as they wash the nets. 
He can't get a sandwich. He can't check up on his mother-in-law's health. He can't even pull out his smartphone and check tomorrow's weather so he can prepare for what's ahead. He just has to sit and listen. Which if you've ever been in that kind of situation, you know it's not going to kill you, but it's a bit insensitive. But the insensitivity doesn't really stop there. In fact, Jesus becomes what I would call downright obtrusive. When he's done speaking, he tells Peter not to go ahead, go back to whatever it was that he was doing before. Rather, he tells Peter, okay, now I want you to put out into the deep water, Peter. Take me fishing. Now, I'm not much of a fisherman. I'll admit that. I've admitted that many times in this church before. But I do have a lot of experience of sitting in a boat all day long and catching nothing, okay? My dad was a musky fisherman. We would go out, we would cast, we would cast, we would cast, we would go back, we would have lunch or whatever it was because we never caught a thing. So I can imagine what it was like to be in Peter's shoes here having been out all night fishing, not having caught anything, and now Jesus says, hey, Peter, let's go back out. Let's throw the nets out in the deep water. I probably would have cried. Maybe Peter would have as well. And Peter had good reason to feel that way. I'm told that fishing the deep water of this lake, whether it's the Lake of Gennesaret, we think it's the same lake as the Sea of Galilee, but fishing that water in the deep in the middle of the day, we're told by the experts, is simply crazy. There were no fish in the deep waters at that time of day. And besides using nets, the fish are going to see the nets in the bright sunshine and that sort of thing. You're not going to catch anything. And then on top of that, we have to remember that Jesus was a carpenter. And so here you have a carpenter giving fishing advice to someone who's fished his whole life. And here Peter is, a professional fisherman, and he's got to listen to this. Peter is bruised, Peter's battered, he's tired, he's put out, he's behind in his work. And here's this carpenter telling him, let's go out and do some more fishing. And so we're not surprised when Peter's response to Jesus comes with a, a tone of reluctance, right? Master, we have been out all night and caught nothing, but if you say so, I'll do it again. So you can hear the strain in Peter's voice. Jesus' insensitivity seems to have morphed into something stronger, rudeness. Peter is being totally imposed upon here, and yet he does it. He goes out. Why? Why do you think that is? Would you have done it had you been in Peter's position? Why does Peter go out? Is it just because he's polite? Is it because he's the kind of guy who avoids confrontation at all costs? Is it because he sees something in Jesus, something of being a master, something of greatness, that, hey, I better just go along with this guy? Why is it that Peter goes out again. Is it polite or is it something bigger than that? 
I think there's something more going on here. Remember Peter's situation. We've been out all night and we caught nothing. This is when Jesus comes to Peter and says, get in the boat with me. We've been out all night. We haven't caught a thing. Peter, let me get in your boat. Let's set out a little from shore. Gary Schmidt uh, wrote a wonderful novel for young adults. It's called Lizzie Bright and the Buckminster Boy. Perhaps uh, some of you have read it. The story takes place on the coast of Maine. Turner Buckminster is the son of the Reverend Buckminster. Uh, Turner's dad has just accepted a call to serve a church in uh, Philip or Phippsburg, Maine. Phippsburg, Maine. And so Turner has to go through that awful process of learning a new place and making new friends. Not an enviable position. And his hopes look up, though, when at the church's Welcome to Phippsburg picnic, Deacon Hurd announces the baseball game that's going to take place that afternoon. Schmidt says Turner's mother turned to him and grinned, and Turner grinned back. With whistles and calls and impossible boasts, the men and boys of the First Congregational Church of Phippsburg strolled across to Thayer's hay meadow, mown just the day before, and marked out the lines. They circled the pitcher's mound and squared the batter's box beside the plate. Then Deacon Hurd, now umpire Hurd, took off his jacket and held a bat out to Turner. You ever play this game before, young Buckminster? Yes, sir, said Turner. He wanted to say about a hundred thousand times, or about a hundred million times, or, Mister, I can shimmy a ball down a line so pretty there isn't a soul on God's green earth that can ever get near it. But he held back and he just grinned again. Then you're the first man up, said Deacon Hurd. Yes, sir, said Turner, and took the bat the resin on it feeling like home. It wasn't exactly the kind of field he might lay out on Boston Common. It was more stubble than grass. But Turner saw that the pines sidled awful close to the left field line, and he could spin a ball to make it touch in fair and scoot off into the trees. He imagined that that would be at least a triple and even the trees in the dead center were near enough that the sea breeze could take the ball into their branches if he could just hit it high enough. And he could. Turner decided that the second time up he'd finesse the triple. But now, just to establish himself, he would double past the second baseman. He stepped to the granite plate and took a couple of slow swings. He straightened his left leg and cocked his right. His usually, this usually confused the pitcher, though it didn't seem to confuse this one. He was another herd, Willis herd, and he smiled as he tossed the ball up and down to himself. 
It was the kind of smile you give to a chicken whose head you're about to cut off. He stepped back and took two more slow swings, feeling the groove he left in the air. Then he stepped up again, set his left leg, fixed his eyes, and waited for the quick swing of the pitcher's arm, the flashing slant of the ball through the blue and white air. It never came. Willis held the ball a long while, still smiling, then slowly leaned forward, swung his arm down low, and lofted the ball into a high arc. Turner had never seen anything like it. The ball went about as high as a young pine, then turned, slowly spun its seams once or twice, and sauntered on down until it bounced softly on the granite plate. Strike one, hollered Deacon Hurd. Turner looked at him. Was that a pitch? That was a strike. It landed on the plate. That's what a strike will do. I thought you said you'd played this game before. Let's see another strike, said Turner. And he did. Another high, lofting ball. No human being had ever pitched like that before, Turner decided. It added an entirely new aerial dimension. And when the ball meandered down from about a mile above his head, he flailed at it as if it were a bumblebee. Strike two, shouted the deacon herd. You know you've got only one more, son. Maybe you better bend that front leg, called still smiling Willis. Turner stepped back from the plate and let the bat swing low a couple of times. He couldn't go for the double, just a single. Someone clapped, and when he looked up, it seemed that every member of Phippsburg First Congregational was standing on the lines, figuring that he didn't have any idea what he was doing. Willis waited a moment, letting Turner settle in, and Turner wondered what Willis's smile would look like if the ball went crashing back into his face. Maybe that wasn't something a minister's son should want to see, but he did want to see it. He was almost startled at the fact that he wanted to see it so badly. He took another couple of swings, and then he straightened his front leg and waited. You sure you don't want to bend that leg? You'd balance better, suggested Deacon Hurd. Turner did not move. He waited with the bat held over his shoulder absolutely still, and Willis looped the pitch up to him. It must have peaked somewhere in the stratosphere because this time it came down screaming. Turner watched it come. He wanted it to come. The ball was big and fat, getting bigger and fatter, and he knew that when he swung at just the right second, he would shoot it out into center. He would feel it pop against his wrists, would watch it leap as he trotted easily to first. Rushing, 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 waiting, 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 swinging. And the ball dropped onto the granite plate, bounced up against his knee, plopped back onto the plate, and rolled still against his ankle. Strike three, yelled Deacon Hurd. Bend your front leg next time, offered Willis. 
You'll catch on, Turner. Next time, you'll catch on, called Reverend Buckminster and turned laughing to one of the deacons who had thumped him on the back. Turner looked away from his father. He handed the bat to Deacon Hurd, and he sat down on the grass. No one else struck out the rest of the inning. No one else struck out the rest of the game except Turner. He never could time the descent of the ball. It always seemed to cheat on him. In Boston, baseball was honest. The pitcher threw as hard as he could, and the ball came flat and fast, or maybe spinning into a curve, but still fast. Here it just seemed to hang in the currents of the air until it found the convenient moment to plop onto the granite plate. No matter how he timed the thing, he was always off, and the most he could manage was a weasel of a hit that looped back to the pitcher's glove. Good, Turner, you got it back to me, said Willis. Turner thought he might as well die right then and there. It's probably too much to hope for the apocalypse. And so his first failure in Phippsburg, he suspected he'd hear about it for a long, long time. You can probably imagine that Turner didn't make a lot of friends in Phippsburg. Striking out so fantastically tends to stick with a guy. But in his loneliness, in his poverty, you might say, Turner met someone he otherwise may never have even noticed. Her name was Lizzie Bright. Lizzie was a smart and sassy girl who lived on nearby Malaga Island, a poor community founded by former slaves. Lizzie became Turner's best friend. Lizzie showed Turner how to hit a main baseball, dig for clams along the shore, and row a boat next to a whale. You might say that in Lizzie, Turner discovered the kingdom of God. But what Schmidt wants us to remember, I think, is that finding Lizzie Bright and finding joy and finding the kingdom of God begins not with a triple down the line. It begins with a soul-crushing strikeout. Friends, this is how fishers of people get their start. This is how followers of Jesus begin. I have come to preach the good news to the poor, said Jesus to the people of Nazareth. When Jesus told Peter to put out into the deeper water, remember where Peter was. Peter wasn't flush with fish. His nets weren't burdened with so many fish, so many fish. When Jesus came and said, Peter, let's go out into the water a little bit, Peter had been out all night with nothing to show for it. Peter was poor, you might say. Back in the synagogue in Nazareth in Luke 4, Jesus told the people that he'd come to proclaim the good news to the poor. Who are the poor. Who are the poor in Scripture? Friends, the poor in Scripture are the humble. 
And they are those who therefore depend on the Lord for everything. They are the exact opposite of the proud. The proud are those who are self-sufficient. The proud are those who can do it by themselves, and therefore they rely on themselves. The poor rely on God. The label being poor in the Bible, it's not just an economic label, it's actually a social label as well. The poor are not simply those with a little bit of money, they're those with little social status as well, like those with disabilities, or the elderly, or women, or children. The poor are social outsiders. They're people of different ethnic groups, or, or people who've made such poor choices in life that they've been left outside the accepted religious circles of their community. The poor are also the oppressed. They have nothing because what they had had was taken away by someone else. Proverbs 10.15 says this, it says, The wealth of the rich is their fortified city. But poverty is the ruin of the poor. What the sage is saying there is that to be poor is to be a city without walls. You're unable to protect yourself. You're vulnerable to anyone and anything. And anything that you have is taken away from you time and time and time again. Here in Luke chapter 5, Jesus is preaching to Peter, to one who has nothing. His boats are empty, but therefore he's in the perfect position, not just to hear, but to listen. Not just to hear, but to listen. Peter is in that position where he is poor, and the poor are used to being imposed upon. They have no city walls. They're used to be imposed upon. That's why when Jesus came inconsiderately asking, hey, let me use your boat, Peter was willing Tim Keller remarks on this idea when he says that he says that you cannot be a Christian if you are middle class in spirit. Let me say that again. You cannot be a Christian if you are middle class in spirit. You must be poor in spirit, he says. To be middle class in spirit, he says, is religious. That's what it means to be religious. Religious people say things like, I can do it if I work hard. I'll just work a little harder. I can be better if I put my mind to it, right? I can be more moral if I just try harder. That's a middle class sort of mentality. That's a being middle class in spirit. To be poor in spirit is to say, I have absolutely nothing of value. I have no power. I have no choices. All I can do is rely completely on the grace of Jesus. The only people who truly hear the gospel, friends, are the poor. Religion is for the middle class. Try hard. Give nobly. Right? Give to the poor. Do good things. 
Yes, I will. I will. That's the middle class in spirit. The gospel is for the poor in spirit. There is no one who is good. No, not one. You are utterly lost. There is no good in you. Even your best works are filthy rags. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. And this is where Peter is. When Jesus comes and he says, let me get in your boat. Peter is willing. Peter is poor. But not only is Peter poor, Peter is also blind. And Jesus came to open the eyes of the blind as well, remember. Peter's problem isn't just poverty. It's lack of sight. And even so, when Jesus overwhelms Peter with this miraculous catch of fish, notice Peter's response. He doesn't say, hey, I'm rich. He doesn't say, hey, Jesus, stick with me forever because I'll never go hungry again. I'll always have a full stomach. No, what Peter says is rather, go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. Jesus opens the eyes of a blind man with his miracle here. Jesus shows Peter his glory and opens his eyes to who Jesus really is. Jesus is Lord. And he opens Peter's eyes to see himself and who he really is. And that is he's a sinful man. And it's in seeing his own true sinful condition that Peter actually becomes useful to Jesus. This is where he becomes useful. It's not Peter's boat that Jesus is after. It's not Peter's fishing skills that he's after. Jesus is after Peter. And Jesus is after people. Jesus is after people like us. And people outside of these walls. We can't ever forget the goal, okay? The goal. The goal is not a boat full of fish. It never is. It's not for Peter. It's not for us. It's not for Jesus. Remember what we said last week. Jesus didn't come just to heal a few people in Capernaum. He kept walking. Why did he keep walking? I must proclaim the kingdom of God. I must go to the other regions where God has sent me. Jesus came not just to save a few. Jesus came to save the world. And what do, what do the people of the world look like? Who in the world is open to hearing the gospel? They're people like Peter. They're people like Turner Buckminster. They're the poor. And friends, who is it that's going to reach the poor? It's people who understand their own poverty. It's people who understand their own sin. It's people whose eyes Jesus has opened. Think about Jesus' way, right? How does Jesus save the world? 
Jesus saves the world through humility and gentleness and compassion and sacrifice. And he calls his followers to work in the same way. The messengers have to fit the message. That's why when you see Jesus working with his disciples throughout the Gospels, right? It's not Jesus calling them to be, to be more sufficient in themselves, to be more proficient, to be more accomplished, to be more successful. You never hear Jesus saying that to his disciples. Rather, Jesus says just the opposite. Jesus is always working to keep them humble, to keep them humble. When they start arguing amongst themselves as to who is the greatest, what does Jesus do? He calls them back and reminds them, we're servants. We're called to serve. When Peter pulls out his sword, what does Jesus say? Peter, it's not by power. It's not by sword. Put that thing away. He's always reminding his disciples who they are. It's about humility. It's about poverty. Why? Because it's you that God is calling to go and to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God. Friends, if we're going to be useful to Jesus, the main thing that we must remember is that we are sinners. We are broken. This is one place in the world where we don't care about how many fish you've caught. And we don't care about how big your boat is. All we care about is where in your poverty did you meet Jesus? When did you see Jesus in all of his glory? And when did you know that you were a sinner? I will make you fishers of men, Jesus said. I will make you fishers of men. This is how he does it. He shows us his glory. And in his glory we see our own poverty. And then we become useful disciples for the King of kings and the Lord of lords. They left everything on the shore, everything that they owned. And in their poverty they got up and they followed Jesus and they became fishers of men. And so will we. Let's bow together in prayer. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, come to us. Impose yourself upon us. And make sure our hearts are open to receive you. Lord, so much of what we hear on this, in this world is that life is all about how many fish we catch, how many boats are in our navy, how much success we can garner. And you keep coming to us, reminding us of who you are. And when we see you in all of your glory, we're reminded once again that we are nothing more than sinners. And it's then that we become 
servants of yours, useful in your kingdom. And so, Lord, call us again and again and again to leave all of our nets on the shore and to just follow you. And in following you, in being your servants, in being the people that we are, use us to reach all of those in this world who are poor in spirit and ready to hear some good news. Make us fishers of people. In Jesus' name, amen.